You'll be taking out your Bibles and following along this evening as we study from God's Word. I encourage you to test the things I have to say to see if they are the truth. If you find what I say to be the truth, I hope we'll take it and apply it in our lives and we can all leave here being better servants of God in the future than we have in the past. We give a great deal of emphasis, and rightfully so, to the death of Christ. We have a memorial that He instituted the night before His death that we partake every first day of the week so that we may remember His death on the cross. It's by His death that we can have that forgiveness of our sins because of the blood that was shed. And so it's understanding that we would give a great deal of emphasis in our teaching and our preaching unto the death of Christ. But another thing that is of great emphasis in the New Testament, and we'll see later on some examples of the emphasis it's given, is the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, Him raising on the third day, is of a great emphasis in the Gospel and a great emphasis in the teachings of the book of Acts in particular, but of the New Testament as a whole. So what I want us to do over the next few moments is to explore the and study the resurrection. Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. And I want us to look at three things that we learn from the Scriptures about the resurrection from the dead. The first of those is we learn of the importance of the resurrection. This is is why we need to study the resurrection. The resurrection is one of those topics that we know about, maybe read books about, heard great teaching about. But the resurrection is a topic that we cannot spend enough time emphasizing its importance. And so let's look at some reasons why we need to spend some time in studying the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Number one, Jesus' resurrection from the dead proves Him to be the Son of God. We're studying the book of Romans on Sunday morning. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 4, backing up actually into verse 3, He says, concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' death is significant because that's how we have forgiveness of sins. But His resurrection is important because it proves that He is who He claimed to be. If he had simply been somebody that had lived and had died, been put to death for what he had taught, but he had not been raised from the dead, then he would not have been proven to be who he claimed he was, and that is the Son of God. But in that Jesus not only died, but he rose the third day, just as he had prophesied, it proved him to be the Son of God. That's Paul's point in the book of Romans, chapter 1 and in verse 4. By Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it proves Him the Son of God. Furthermore, His resurrection is for our justification. We studied just last Sunday morning in Romans chapter 4, and in Romans chapter 4 and in verse 25 it says, "...who was delivered up because of our offenses." That is, He died because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. 
And Jesus was able to go into the holiest of holies and offer that blood sacrifice to take it and appeal to God and be that high priest for us because not only did He die and give His blood to be that sacrifice, but He's raised again that He could go and He could be that mediator between God and between man. And so He's for our justification. Furthermore, without the resurrection from the dead, our faith is futile. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12, says, Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's dealing with some people in 1 Corinthians 15 that are questioning the resurrection from the dead. Not just Christ's resurrection, but will we be raised someday? If there is no resurrection from the dead, that is, if we're not raised in the end, if we're not raised in the judgment day, then Christ is not risen. Some are saying there's not a resurrection from the dead and that in the end of time, you know, when it comes to the end, those that have died are not going to be raised from the dead and judged. And Paul's saying, if we are not going to be raised, if there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead, then Christ Himself is not risen. Here's the consequence of that. Verse 14, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead do not rise. Paul says our faith is empty. The, te- the preaching of the gospel is empty. The, the apostles are found to be false witnesses if they have testified that God has raised Jesus from the dead, and if the dead do not rise, as some were claiming, and then Jesus has not risen from the dead, and if He has not risen from the dead, then they're false witnesses and false teachers, and the t- our faith is empty. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, verse 16. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You're beginning to see the importance of the resurrection from the dead. He died so that we could have that blood sacrificed to be forgiven of our sins. But now that He is risen, He can go and take that before God. And if He did not raise on the third day, we are still in our sins. 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 17. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed on, is who he's talking about, in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men the most pitiable. And so the resurrection from the dead is important because it gives us hope not in the life to come. Our faith is futile without it, and it gives us hope of what is to come. That is, His resurrection is evidence that we too can be raised from the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, now beginning at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after those, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts all, puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. You see, he's the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. A first fruit, is a witness of that was to come. That is, the first fruit is evidence that more is going to come. If Christ is the first fruit of those that have been raised from the dead, then there will be more that are followed. He points out in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ is the first fruit after the words, those who are Christ that is coming. That is, there, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, His bodily resurrection from the dead, is proof that we too will be raised in the judgment day. We too will be raised to give an account. And so we have hope because of the resurrection from the dead. Beginning to see the importance of Jesus' resurrection. It's proved him to be who he claimed to be. It is for our justification. Without it, we're still in our sins and our faith is futile. And it's evidence that we too will be raised in the end. 
But I want to talk about the importance of the gospel and the resurrection from the dead. We're beginning to see that the resurrection from the dead is important, but I want you to notice how closely linked it is to the teaching of the gospel. Sermons in the book of Acts focused on the resurrection. As you move throughout the book of Acts, you'll find time and time again where the resurrection is mentioned. Go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 33. Acts 13 and in verse 33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that He raised Him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He spoke thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, He also says in another Psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You see, Paul in First Corinthians, or in Acts chapter 13, as he's beginning to teach, is beginning to put emphasis on the resurrection. He's raised up Jesus. He quotes from the second Psalm. You are my son today, I've begotten you, applying that to the resurrection from the dead. In verse 34, he says he's raised him up from the dead. No more to see corruption. And then he quotes in, in, 30, in verse 35 from another Psalm saying, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Or the New American Standard says to undergo decay. You see, he's not going to be undergoing decay. He's not going to see corruption. He's going to be raised from the dead. And so Paul is giving emphasis to that here in Acts 13. That Jesus was raised from the dead. Look at Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, he begins back earlier in this text, talking in the midst of Mars Hill or the Areopagus, And as he's talking to them, he begins his appeal by talking about some things in common ground where they, that they had. Remember, he talks about the story of to the unknown God, and then this is who, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing. Verse 23, him I proclaim to you. And he goes into the story about God and he makes the point, uh, tying it back to what their philosophers say about in, in verses 26 through 28. Uh, verse 28, in Him we live, move, and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think, verse 29, that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So then he comes in verse 30, and, and he's been talking about, and remember in this text previously, those that are worshiping the unknown God, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Why is he calling all men everywhere to repent? Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. And then Paul gives an evidence or a proof of that. He has given assurance of this. The New American Standard says he has furnished proof by raising him from the dead. See, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes through and talks about the unknown God, and he talks about how, how they, their own, what their own poets have said, and this is who they need to worship. But when he comes to the end, he brings it back to the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is proof. Here's another reason it's important. The resurrection is proof of a judgment day. And so Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter 13 focus on the resurrection. But Acts chapter 2 focuses on the resurrection from the dead. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. I want us to take a little bit a deeper look at Acts chapter 2. And let's talk about the resurrection in this first gospel sermon. 
In Acts chapter 2, let's talk about the first gospel sermon and the resurrection from the dead. As Peter begins his lesson, back in verse number 14, he remember they supposed that they were drunk, and so he begins his sermon saying, you know, we're not drunk as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 17 and going through verse 21. And then after quoting from Joel, he comes down in verse 22 and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Up to this point, they're agree- they, they can't argue against this. They can't argue about what they've seen Jesus do. They can't argue about the fact that He's been taken and He's been delivered up by the purpose of God. They would argue the purpose of God, but that He's taken and delivered up. He clearly died on the cross. They could see that. It was a well-known fact. But here's where Peter begins to get into the heart of the sermon. Verse 24. For David says concern... Or verse 24. Whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He loosed the pains of death, verse 24. God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death. Now look down in verse 25. Not only were the pains of death loosed, but David prophesied that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Look at the beginning of verse 25. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life and will make me full of joy in your presence. And so he takes back and he quotes from the Psalms, and the same Psalm that that Paul's going to quote in Acts 13, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. David's prophesied that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. How do we know that? Verse 29 through 36 is about God exalting Jesus. Here's this proof that God has exalted Him. Number one, David is still in his tomb. Men and brethren... Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's just said that, quoting from what David said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption, or to to undergo decay. And he says, we can speak of, uh, of David, that he's dead and buried, and we can go see David's tomb right now. So it's not David. David's still in his tomb. But he spoke concerning the Christ. Therefore, verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter's saying, we can go see the tomb of David. David's clearly in his tomb. By this point, David's been dead for a long time. He's clearly going to have undergone decay or see corruption. 
But he spoke being a prophet concerning the Christ, that the Christ would not undergo decay, he would not see corruption, and he would not be left in Hades. So verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And so he talks about them being witnesses. We'll talk more about witnesses in a moment when it comes to the resurrection from the dead. But God has raised him up. Verses 33, he's exalted to the right hand of God. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. And so, he's exalted and at the right hand of God. For it is not David that is at the right hand of God. Look at ver- He quotes from the 110th Psalm. For David, verse 34, did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so verses 34 and 35, it's not David at the right hand of God, it's got to be the Christ. Therefore, verse 36, this is the heart of the sermon. Peter's entire point, he's been talking about the resurrection from the, the death of Christ. He spent a long time arguing the resurrection from the dead to get to his key point in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And his proof of that is the resurrection from the dead. Even from the beginning, Peter argues from the resurrection from the dead. The importance of the resurrection in the gospel. This is why we need to spend more time teaching and preaching on the resurrection. Acts focused on the resurrection from the dead. Acts 13, Acts 17. And the first gospel sermon really spent a long time focusing on the resurrection from the dead. Spent two verses dealing very briefly with the death of Christ, but a long time talking about His resurrection. Because without the resurrection, as we've already seen, our faith is empty. It's futile. And so we have the importance of the resurrection. We've seen that. We've seen the gospel and the resurrection, how it's a theme running throughout the gospel as it's taught in the book of Acts. But I want to spend the remainder of our time this evening talking about some evidence of the resurrection from the dead. I now know why it's important that Christ is raised from the dead. I now know that the gospel in the book of Acts is focusing on the resurrection from the dead. But how do I know for certain that Jesus is raised from the dead? So let's talk about some evidence of the resurrection from the dead. First and foremost, we have the evidence of the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. It's significant that Jesus was laid, if you remember from the, from the Gospels, in a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. It's a new tomb. And that's important because there would be no mistake that there was a body in the tomb, but there the tomb was completely empty. But let's talk real quick before we get to the evidence of the empty tomb about some arguments that some of the enemies uh, of Christ would make for the empty tomb. Some of the arguments as to how the tomb could be empty without Him being raised from the dead. One argument is that the disciples stole the body. The disciples went in and stole the body. That's the argument that's actually used in the Gospels by the enemies of our Lord. If you remember in the book of Matthew, that the enemies of our Lord used that same argument. In verse 13 of Matthew chapter 28, after the soldiers have come and reported what's happened and the tomb is empty... In Matthew chapter 28 and in verse 13, it says, Tell them His disciples came at night and stole Him away while we slept. 
And so even the story that the enemies of our Lord fabricated was that the disciples stole the body. That doesn't fit with what we're going to see in a moment because the disciples were willing to give their life for the cause of Christ. Why would somebody give their life for what they knew to be a lie? What they knew to be a fabricated story. If the disciples stole the body, then they would have no, they would not have given their lives in service to Christ. They would not have sacrificed their lives because they would have known it would have been a lie. Furthermore, one of the arguments is that the enemies of the Lord stole the body. But there's no motivation for the enemies to steal the body. The enemies would have no need to steal the body because they, they stood nothing to gain. In fact, it was the enemies of our Lord that had set a guard around the tomb because they knew that He said, that I will destroy this temple and build it again the third day. And so they set guard to the tomb. They, they had no motivation to steal the body because if they stole the body, instead they're giving calls to their enemies. And if the enemies had stole the body, why not in Acts chapter 2 when he says, this Jesus whom, whom you've crucified, and he points the finger at them and he says, God raised up, why then would the enemies who are present in Jerusalem at the time not stand up and say, well, here's the body, you see, we stole it. And then they could just prove the whole thing right there and it would not have spread anymore. But instead, the enemies never produced the body. The enemies had no motivation for stealing the body. So the enemies could not have stolen it. The other theory is what is called the swoon theory. And that is that Christ really didn't die. He just passed out and was put in the tomb, and in the cool of that tomb, He was revived. The problem with that is, Christ was not only hung on a cross, He was then stabbed in His side. If you remember in the the Gospel of John, and as He stabbed in the side, blood and water came out. He's then taken and laid in a tomb where He lays for three days. And somehow he gets out of the tomb. He rolls away a stone that the three women that came to see his tomb could not roll away. Together, he himself in a weak condition rolls away the stone and then overpowers the guards. Nobody in that kind of condition could have done that. Furthermore, nobody could have survived between the cross and the stabbing and the lashings. He really did die. And so then, if if these are the arguments for the empty tomb, and the tomb is indeed empty, then he must have been raised from the dead. How do we know that the tomb was empty? Let's talk about some evidence real quick of the empty tomb. First and foremost, it was found by the women. Look at Mark chapter 16. In Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 1. Mark 16, beginning at verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? So here's where they question if they could roll, how the tomb, they're going to roll it away. But when they looked up, verse 4, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed, verse 6, but you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. 
And so when they come in in, in in these first six verses, they find the tomb empty. There they see this man clothed in white. He says, see where he had lain. He's no longer there. The tomb was empty. It was then seen by the apostles. In John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, beginning at verse 3, Peter therefore went out, and the other disciple, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also and saw, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. You see, now the apostles are coming. And as they're coming in and they go and they look, they find the tomb empty. Here is Peter and the other apostle referred here, or the other disciple seems to be, would most likely be a reference to John. But here they come and they find the empty tomb. And they look in and when they see the empty tomb, then it says that the other disciple believed. In fact, we already talked about this. Not only was the empty tomb seen by the women and seen by the apostles, Peter appeals to it at great lengths in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36, when he argues that here we can go and we can see that the tomb of David is empty. He's infer or is not empty, he's inferring, but we can go over here and see the tomb of Jesus is empty. You see, if David is still in his tomb, then he's not raised from the dead. But if he's arguing that Christ is raised from the dead, then if you go and you look in Christ's tomb, then he is not there. Peter's arguing that Jesus is raised from the dead on the basis of the empty tomb. That's important. Because the fact that the tomb is empty, very few will dispute the question is how. And the tomb indeed is empty. And we've seen that it cannot be that the disciples stole the body. They weren't even looking for Jesus to be raised from the dead. It cannot be that the enemy stole the body. They had no motivation to steal the body. They had absolutely nothing to gain. And then the swoon theory just does not fit. And that he would, he would, after being on the cross for several hours and the lashings that he underwent and stabbed in the side, that he would just revive in there and that he didn't really die. And then that he would roll away the stone and overtake the guards. And by the way, if you remember, from what the description of John 20, he took the time that they, he would have taken the time to fold the linen cloths before he overtook the guards, or that either disciples or the enemies would fold the linen cloths before they overtook, before they left. It just does not fit. Those would have been in a hurry. The only conclusion we must reach then for the empty tomb is that he must have been raised from the dead. I'll give you some more evidence that Jesus is indeed raised from the dead. The change in the apostles is evidence that He is raised from the dead. In Matthew 26 and in verse 31, the night of His crucifixion, our Lord says, All of you will be made to stumble because of Me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. They're scattered about and they all leave. In fact, not only do they leave, we even have that very same night, the Peter deny the Lord. 
Remember in verse 69 through 75 of Matthew chapter 26, we have the three times that Peter denies the Lord. Here are people that are scattered. Here are people that seem lost and confused. They don't know where to go now that Jesus is crucified. And here's Peter who denies the Lord. Yet in Acts chapter 4, they stand up. And in Acts chapter 4, as Peter's talking there to the Jewish leaders, he says in verse number 9, or 19 rather, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't help but speak the things we've seen and heard. Here's Peter that not that long ago was denying the Lord. Here are all the apostles that not that long ago were scattered, yet in Acts 4 they stand behind Peter. As he says, we can't but help speak the things we have heard. And then in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, he says, we ought to obey God rather than men. Something has changed. Something has changed the apostles. How is it that Peter goes from denying the Lord to ultimately he's going to give his life in service to God? How is it that they're all scattered about? If from what we know, it's all but John were put to death for the cause of Christ. Something changed them, and that something has to be the resurrection from the dead. I want you to think about the reaction. Back in, And it's not on the chart, but go back to John 20. John 20. Up until this point, you've had several statements made by Jesus that have confused the apostles. And they've not fully understood and you remember when they talks about the temple, I'll destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. They didn't understand. The enemy seemed to have some grasp and understanding of that because they put a guard on the, on the tomb. But something changed them. Look at John 20. Then the other disciple, verse 8, who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed. He, he now believes. Remember Thomas? We often refer to him as Doubting Thomas, who says, I'm not going to believe unless I can see where the nails have gone into his hands, unless I can see where they have pierced his feet, unless I can see where his sword has pierced his side. But then the Lord appears to him, and Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Something changed him, and that is he saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Put your hands here, you can feel. My hands were pierced. My side was pierced. Jesus was telling him. This is not a figment of the imagination. John talks about how they could reach out in 1 John and touch Him. He's risen from the dead. And that was brought about a change in the apostles. Furthermore, not only did it bring about a change in the apostles, the change in His enemies, the enemies of our Lord, is proof of the resurrection from the dead. In Matthew chapter 27, verses 22 and 23, as he is standing trial before Pilate, they cry out, Crucify him! Pilate asks them, Why? What evil has he done? Yet they cry more and more, Let him be crucified. Here are the people that are putting the Lord to death. They're crying for the Lord to be put to death. Then when you turn over to Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, and we've already looked at, when he's come about and Peter's been pointing out this Jesus whom you've crucified. Look at verse 36 again. Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. 
Therefore, key verse of Acts chapter 2, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. These are the people that put Him to death. Listen to their response in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and your children and to all who are, all who are far off, as many as our Lord, our, the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received the word, verse 41, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The people that shouted in Matthew chapter 27, crucify Him, are now listening to Peter preach and say, what shall we do? And they've now obeyed the gospel. Something changed. That something is the resurrection from the dead. If you look in the context of that passage, and we've already looked at it, Peter's gone at great lengths to argue that you've put Him to death, but God had determined beforehand the predetermined plan of God, verse 24, He was going to be put to death, that we could be forgiven of our sins. And But he's been raised up by God. David has prophesied of this. The empty tomb is evidence of this. And now he is seated at the right hand of God, awaiting the final judgment. He's both Lord and Christ. And after hearing the abundance of evidence, they cry out, what shall we do? Listening to Peter preach on the resurrection from the dead cut them to the heart. And now they understand they need to make a change in their lives. And they need to serve God. And so the change in our Lord's enemies is evidence of the resurrection from the dead. Furthermore, witnesses are an evidence of the resurrection from the dead. We're just compounding evidence after evidence right now to prove that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. We've seen the fact that the tomb was indeed empty. It couldn't have been that the disciples stole the body. It couldn't have been that the enemy stole the body. And that it wasn't the swoon theory. He didn't just pass out, but he really died. We've already seen that there was a change brought about in the apostles and a change brought about in the disciples. But let's talk for just a moment about the witnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is going to appeal to the fact of the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and was buried, and that He rose the third day according to the Scriptures. He died, He was buried, and He rose. Here's the evidence that he was raised from the dead. Remember, he's dealing with people that are saying that we're not going to be raised in the end. They don't believe in us being raised from the dead. So to prove that, he goes and argues that if we are going to be raised from the dead, or if we can't be raised, then Christ Himself was not raised. And if Christ Himself was raised, that's proof that we will be raised. Here's the evidence he gives that Christ was, he gives that Christ was raised. Look at verse 5. He was seen by Cephas then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, verse 6, of whom the greater part remain to the present, and some have fallen asleep. Then he was seen by James, verse 7. 
by all the apostles again in verse 7. And then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. He was then seen by Saul or Paul. Here are the witnesses to the resurrection from the dead. Now, if we were compiling a court case, we were making an argument, and we were going before a judge to make a case before a court, and they would call some witnesses, they would need two or three competent witnesses. We have at this point people that had their own business like Cephas, or Peter, as we better know him, James and John and Andrew. He's witnessed by Luke, who's a physician, by Paul, who is considered the most educated of the day, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. These are some competent witnesses. And if that's not enough evidence, at that point, with just those witnesses right there, he was seen by over 500 at once. You could argue that one or two, maybe even just the twelve, if they were looking for Jesus to be raised, could have have imagined it all at once. But he's seen by over 500 at once. There's an abundance of evidence and an abundance of witnesses that he was raised from the dead. Those aren't all the witnesses though. Those are just the ones that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15. For time's sake, we won't go, we won't go and read these, but he was also seen in Mark 16 and in verse 9 by Mary Magdalene. And in Luke 24, verses 13 through 27, he was seen by the two men on the road to Emmaus. Remember, he went in and ate with them, and after he had, had given thanks, they had seen him, realized who he was, and then he disappeared. And they said, oh, how our hearts burned within us. He was witnessed by the two men on the road to Emmaus as long as Mary Magdalene. There's an abundance of witnesses. Again, we're compiling more and more evidence. The tomb is empty. The apostles, there was a change, something resulted in a change in the apostles. Something resulted in a change in the enemies, and there was an abundance of witnesses. If that's not convincing enough, I want you to look at one last piece of evidence with me. The change in Saul of Tarsus. The change in Saul of Tarsus. There was a man that was known as Lord Lyttelton who had tried to disprove the conversion of Saul. This man did not believe in God and he wanted to disprove the, the Bible to be true. And him, along with another writer, decided to set out and he was going to disprove the conversion of Saul and the southern was going to disprove the resurrection from the dead. And as they began to compile this evidence, as, as Lyttelton began to compile his evidence to argue to disprove that Paul or Saul of, then Saul of Tarsus was not really converted, and to disprove the resurrection, said there were only four possibilities. That is, there are only four things that could take place in the story of Saul of Tarsus. The first of those is he's an imposter. Saul knew that what he was saying wasn't true, and he intended to deceive. And so he, he, he told, tells the story of seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus and seeing this light, and, and it's a story fabricated by Saul. It could be that he's an enthusiast with an overheated imagination, and he just imagined it to happen. Not that he believes it, not that he, he knows that he's teaching something false, but it's something he just really just imagined. It didn't really happen, but it just, in his mind it did. 
that he was deceived or frauded by others. Somebody set out to deceive Saul in making him think that he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. And then the fourth and final one is that it was really true. Now let's take a look at what Lyttelton discovered as he went through these. He discovered first and foremost, his studies concluded that Saul was not an imposter. Saul was not an imposter. Well, how do we know that? He had nothing to gain. He was not going to gain wealth by teaching the gospel, or reputation, or power, or gratification, or pious fraud. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of things that he was giving up by serving God. Here's a man that if he didn't at the present, would have probably at one point in the near future have held a seat on the Sanhedrin Council. Well respected among the Jews. He would have had a lot of power among the Jewish people. Had a great reputation among those of the Jews. But he gave it all up. These I count but laws, Philippians chapter 3 tells us. And so the conclusion was, by Lyttelton, since he had nothing to gain, he had no need to lie and be an imposter and teach that which he knew to be false. Okay, so he's not an imposter. Let's take the second part. Lyttelton then takes that he's an enthusiast. He's an enthusiast. It's just imagined in his mind. But there was no evidence of that. No evidence that, that, that Saul was somebody of this, this wild act of imagination. Here's a well-educated, well-respected individual, somebody not vain. And so he concluded, when you take this evidence together, a well-educated man that seems to, to, to have his head on straight, that it, he didn't just imagine that this happened. It couldn't be his, an act, overactive imagination or overheated imagination. So we now know he's not an imposter. He had nothing to gain. He doesn't seem to be a person with an overactive imagination. And so he's not an enthusiast. So that only leaves us with two conclusions. He was either deceived by others or it is in, it is in fact true. Lyttelton's research concluded that he could not have been deceived by others. First of all, that would have been nothing that the apostles or the disciples would have thought of. To go out and to take this man persecuting the church and to, to speak to him and to produce this light and to convince him that he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus, that's not something the apostles would have thought of. Furthermore, it was physically impossible to create a light greater than the midday sun. The book of Acts describes him as seeing a light greater than the midday sun. There's no way that the disciples, the apostles, could have replicated that. Not only that, he heard a voice and understood what it said. Those around him heard a voice and did not understand. How could the disciples have done that? If they were speaking, then either no one would have understood or they all would have understood. It had to be something else. And so no fraud could have, and no fraud could have produced the subsequent miracles he performed. We now see that he's performing all these miracles after his conversion. And that couldn't have been produced by him being frauded by the disciples, him being deceived by the disciples. Those miracles had to really take place. Therefore, Lyttelton was left with one conclusion, and that is it really happened. The conclusion was it happened. Saul was converted, and thus it proves the resurrection from the dead. Lyttelton, a man that once set out to disprove the resurrection from the dead and disprove 
that Saul of Tarsus was converted actually later would believe in God. And it was a result of his study that he did here, his result of his studies through the conversion of Saul that said this really had to happen. And so he now he then had faith in God after his research into the conversion of Saul. The resurrection is important. It's important we study the resurrection from the dead. We've seen several reasons why. It proves Jesus to be who He claimed to be, that is, the Son of God. It's for our justification, according to Romans 4.25. Our faith is futile without it. 1 Corinthians 15.12-19. And it's evidence that we too can be raised. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20-24. through The Gospel's focal point is the resurrection from the dead. Paul brought it up in both Acts 13 and 17. And Peter argued at great lengths for the resurrection from the dead in Acts chapter 2. And then we looked at an abundance of evidence. The tomb was empty. There was a change in the apostles, a change in the Lord's enemy. There was an abundance of witnesses. And there was a change in Saul of Tarsus. And so there had to be a resurrection from the dead. Now it's important we study the resurrection, not just for the reasons that we listed, but it can help to strengthen our faith. As we read through the Scriptures and we see what the Bible has to say about about service to God, what we see with the, the Bible, and we want to argue if it's the Word of God or not, the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead can furnish proof for us that the Word of God, that the Bible is in reality the Word of God. And it can help strengthen our faith when we study things like the resurrection from the dead. And help give us confidence in what we believe in. It may be this evening that there is someone present who's not yet responded in obedience to the gospel. Having heard the word, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He came, that He lived, that He died, and that He rose the third day? That you might have that hope of heaven and your life on earth is over? If so, are you not willing to repent of your sins, to confess your faith in Jesus Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism, to rise and to walk in a newness of life, that you might have heaven, when, that hope of heaven when your life on earth is over? Maybe you're here and you've done that, but somewhere along the line you, you stumbled and fallen away. If you'll come forward, we will pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. No matter what your need is, if you're here this evening and we can assist you in any way, would you not come forward as together we stand and as we sing?